0: seven, eight,
1: To Forward Together, a podcast from the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, where we shine a light on the people and ideas that drive the movement to end the evils of systemic racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, and false moral narratives of religious nationalism. In episode 10, Nate Davis catches up with fair sentencing activist Kaleem Nazim, a charter member of the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, who left his Little Rock community at the age of 17 to begin a life sentence in what he calls the bondage system. Kaleem shares what Little Rock was like in the late 80s and 90s, and how the streets compensated for what the school to prison pipeline steals from young black boys. You'll find out what happened when 21 year old Kaleem wouldn't pick cotton for the Arkansas Department of Corrections, and what it means for a soul to live with intention. Listen in as Colleen, who will graduate from Arkansas State University with an associate's degree in science this summer, explains freed spirits, enslaved spirits, and its impact on the metamorphosis that we all undergo while becoming the whole and fulfilled human beings that we are truly meant to be.
2: Hey, listeners, before we get to the conversation, I just want to make one note that uh, Kaleem mentioned that he misspoke about the year of his release being 2017. What he mentioned was he actually was released from incarceration on August 10th, 2018. We're making that correction here. Now, on to the conversation. Kaleem, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, uh, thank you for having me, Nate. Uh, It's it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm just uh, glad that you're inviting me to this space.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. We're glad to have you on and you know, usually with most of the guests so far who've been on the podcast, I the first question I kind of like to ask is to just kind of tell us about yourself. You can go bar- back as far as you want. You know, into your childhood if you like, kind of give us a indication of where you come from and uh we'll get more of course. I know we got a lot we can talk about when it comes to your experience of incarceration. We can get all all that uh, later, but if you be Willing to share with us some of your journey into you know, as a child and everything, um, anything you're comfortable sharing, we'd love to hear from you.
0: My name is uh, Kalim Nazim. Uh, I'm originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. I grew up in uh, the Granite Mountain Housing Projects. Uh, I had five other siblings, and I think, you know, this is a major part of my story, uh, how I was raised and where I came from. Um, As I previously said, I grew up in the Granite Mountain housing project, and that was one of the, I think it was at the time, the biggest housing project in Arkansas, and it was really a a low-income community that was uh, a lot of crime from... Selling drugs to guys getting shot, and it just was a violent, a violent em- environment. And uh, this is why I spent my formative years, and and I think this had a big uh, impact on my life, as the way I see the world, uh, of the way I seen the world, and um, the things that allowed me or uh, caused me to get into uh, what I got into, where eventually uh, I was incarcerated at the age of seventeen years old. I received a life without without parole sentence. And ultimately, I served 28 years and 11 months of incarceration. Uh, And in 2012, the Arkansas Supreme Court, not the Arkansas Supreme Court, but the United States Supreme Court, uh, said that it was unconstitutional to give a juvenile a life without parole sentence. And ultimately, that, that is what led to my freedom so in 2017, uh, August the 10th, I was freed after doing 28 years and 11 months. I went back to my resentencing hearing and, and received a 40-year sentence. So by me having done the amount of time that I had done, I was ga- given time served, and I was able to come home on August the 10th in a nutshell. um that was my journey as far as, you know, it's uh, going through the criminal justice system or the, uh, the the penal system because I really don't classify it as a justice system because there's so, so many flaws in the system that a lot of times uh, when you're impoverished and black and low income and uh, there's really a different uh, level of implementation of the system than it, it, it will be if you, I guess you can say, was well, in a position of privilege.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that. That's a really powerful um, uh, start here. Just kind of your laying out the kind of the overall arc of your journey so far, uh, up into your freedom and and uh 2017. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to circle back and kind of just talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in the projects. Um, what was that like as far as, as a child, um, uh, you don't have to get into any, any details you don't want to, but this, what was it like, um, processing what you're seeing around you and what, what, what did it kind of, how did that inform your perspective on the world?
0: Well, uh, as I was, as I was growing up, I thought it was the most naturalist thing. The things that I seen going on around me from, you know, guys getting shot, uh, guys getting robbed, uh older guys introducing uh, younger guys uh, to uh, drugs and illicit behavior. I thought this was normal because that's the only thing i seen as I was growing up. But I can say this here, uh, that when, when I think about my childhood, I also, I also see a lot of people that was in my life trying to tell me different things that I just wasn't listening to. Because yeah. really, basically, Uh, I guess when you're growing up in a lower income community, you have uh, two forms of society. You have, on one hand, you have people who are, you know, going outside of uh, the standard means of supporting themselves. And then on the other side, you have, you know, uh, single mothers, single parents uh, uh, that's doing what they can, you know, working three or four jobs and different things of that nature. They're they're staying within the confines of the law. And... I, I, from, from a personal uh, perspective, I just chose, uh, to go along with the guys, the, the guys that I, uh, chose to look up to was really involved in, uh, in the streets and in then sin and crime business. So from being impressionable, uh, they kind of led me in that direction. Yeah. So I, 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 I just felt the need to clarify that not everyone who was in a low income community, uh, or co-signs or participate in uh, illegal activity because I think sometimes uh, that picture gets gets painted, but it's it's an inaccurate picture.
2: Yeah, that's a really great point. I appreciate you making that point because that's I think that is such a an important thing to say to really help us uh, create a, a better narrative around what it means to grow up in a poor neighborhood. Because like like you said, there there can be this tendency to. Overemphasize the presence of harmful activity and underemphasize the presence of love and mm-hmm. community that still exists there. Would you, you you're saying that you kind of got, you saw both of them, but yeah. one had more more of a draw than the other?
0: And then you know when you when you like, uh, you know how how did I feel? And you know I kind of you know juxtapose a lot of my childhood against what's going on. In our society today because when you look at um, a lot of the communities today as far as you know uh, the gun violence in our neighborhood or uh, the, the black-on-black violence and things of that nature there. and I kind of uh, I kind of look at all this here and kind of compare it to my childhood and even though when I was younger I was involved in a lot of things I didn't have to I, I didn't have any business being involved in but i always uh it was elders in our community that even though i was i was doing things i didn't have any business doing when i was around the elders of my community i always hid my hand as far as you know there was a certain level of respect and you know when i was growing up it was like uh, any any woman in the community can chastise a child of that community right and I think that's a that's a loss uh, to our communities today because our children isn't our children as far as, you know, if they're not your biological children, then you don't have a right to say anything to them. And I think we need to uh, revert back to some of the lessons of the past where um, if you're a part of the community, then an elder can call you on your behavior. When when I was growing up, there was a lot of scary things in in my community. As far as you know, uh, you had guys you know uh, shooting each other and things of that nature. There, but there was also on the opposite side of that spectrum, there was a lot of love. When I when I look at my story, uh, when I evaluate my childhood and my upbringing, and I speak on these type of forms, it's not that I'm I'm talking about my experiences, but my experiences isn't unique. And sometimes I find it kind of hard to really articulate it into words, what I didn't went through and how I felt at a certain time because some of the things uh, that I felt uh, growing up, I can articulate now and say it was uh, uh, an undercurrent of systemic racism, systemic poverty, and things of that nature there but as I was living through it I couldn't I couldn't identify exactly what was going on but I felt that it was something wrong as as far as you know one example um, is when I was in the first grade I flunked the first grade and me and my brother was so close in age and we looked so much alike alike that the teachers couldn't couldn't uh, separate us as far as, you know, they didn't know whether they was talking to me or my brother. So by him being the oldest, I feel like I was held back a grade to put some separation between us. At the time, I felt that was wrong, but I didn't know how to, you know, uh, articulate it within words. And then uh, from being placed in a, a special education program, saying that, that I was slowing things to that nature down. Which I never felt. I always felt that I was pre- a, a pretty intelligent person, but the way that I was processed through the school system, I felt that that was wrong. But I didn't know how to articulate that either. So it just yeah. was a lot of experiences within my life, as far as you know what I'm saying. Uh, not only just in my uh, in my living environment, in my neighborhood, or but in the greater scheme of things, you know, when I went to school or uh, when I went outside of my community and things of that nature, down, it just was something that was kind of offset that I wasn't able to articulate as a, uh, as a adolescence or, or, you know, but today when I just look at all these things, I, I kind of, you know, see how some of the things now that I really classify as, uh, uh, systematic oppression uh, or, you know, uh, and I guess I really can't <laughs> can't fully articulate it now, but it's just a lot of things, man, I just felt uh, was fundamentally wrong, uh, not so much uh, with me, but with the system and the systems that was at play and still are at play.
2: Yeah, I think that's such an important perspective when you think about, uh, a child having to process these big systemic issues and not really knowing that they're actually what they actually are—you just know something's wrong. And, and it. Um, did you experience frustration with seeing those things come up uh, as they were happening, or did you kind of just uh, accept them for what they were? Or were you confused? And what kind of response did you have when you knew things were kind of off? Couldn't quite uh, process it.
0: For the most part, uh, I became detached from a lot of things as far as, uh, when I, I can kind of remember when I first started school, and uh, around about the third grade is when I started really kind of, I, I guess, I guess you can say isolating myself as far as, you know, uh, and start thinking in, in, in terms of, um. Uh, well, really, this ain't for me type of uh, terms due to the fact I had, I guess you can classify this um being, been, had been let down by the system, uh, the school system at that point, because it all started off when, when I was held back a grade, then it just kind of sparrowed, you know what I'm saying, slowly, you know, uh, whereas like there really wasn't any special emphasis placed on my education as far as, you know. Well, I'm gonna put you in the back of the class. You don't have to do nothing. When I do uh, call you up uh, in front of the class, it's more—it's more of an a embarrassment mechanism. So when it comes to school, and I kind of started isolating, and, you know, things of that nature, now, and that kind of just drove me further to the streets.
2: Well, again, that's a—that's one of those responses that's not uncommon for. Children, especially when you are experiencing, like you said, things that are happening, you feel like there's there aren't right, but you can't articulate them. And one of those responses can be to, to kind of just withdrawal. Like you said, that withdrawal can lead you down to other paths that can take place. <laughs> kind of was thinking about you know the you talked about growing up in this projects neighborhood the presence of poverty um the question i have since you're you know you've, you've lived through that you've processed a lot of this stuff you're looking back now um why do you think that in general whenever we talk about uh, neighborhoods that, are, that have low wealth or are impoverished why do you think that the, that usually with that comes um elements of violence and why do you think those go hand in hand in your perspective
0: well I think a lot of that come in the form of uh you know it's a saying that hurt people hurt people a lot of times we hurt we hurt the people that's closest to us it's like I kind of I kind of liken it to you know the the violence that uh, we see in low-income communities is because that that concept of that we hurt the people that's closest to us. And a lot, uh, a lot of that got to do with, we have to, in order to really understand what's going on today, we have to kind of go back in history to look at some of the uh, systemic racism and oppression that didn't happen to uh, uh, black people and people of color. How we were treated on uh, the plantations, How we was, was kind of uh, pitted against each other, uh, from the light-skinned uh, Negro to the uh, dark-skinned Negro, or however you want to put it, the, the Willie Lynch uh, syndrome.
2: Hi, listeners. Nate here with an explanatory comma. Colleen mentioned the Willie Lynch syndrome. What is he referring to here? Well, Willie Lynch syndrome refers to the ongoing polarizing sociological issues within the African American community. The syndrome takes its name from a speech allegedly given by a British owner of enslaved Africans named William Lynch in 1712. The African American Centers for Advanced Studies Council believes this syndrome causes a divide in the African American community and is a contributing factor in black-on-black violence. Willie Lynch syndrome can be demonstrated and prejudice based on skin tone and the coarseness of one's hair. The Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia at Ferris State University states that the account of the speech given by Willie Lynch is a lie and a hoax. However, the effect is still recognized as a legitimate concern in present-day society as it describes the behaviors of black people who've internalized systemic racism and white supremacy. There you have it, the Willie Lynch syndrome. Now back to the conversation.
0: A lot of it. The- when you just look at it closer, you get close enough, you can still see it in our communities. It's just really manifesting itself in different forms, but it's still the same, it's still the same uh, tricks and the same problem. I think when we look at um, the uh, the crime and the level of violence that's in low-income communities, we are really just seeing the symptoms of the bigger problem. And in, in, in the bigger problem I think it's lack of education, systematic racism, uh, taking the uh, male out of the household. Right, right, I think this is one of the biggest problems of our community. Then when you look at uh, the media outlets and uh, what is being uh, pumped into uh, the consciousness of our youth, uh, this is a big problem. And these are all systems of oppression in my opinion because if you turn on uh, any urban radio station, there's three things that you're gonna hear if you listen to it uh, close enough. You're gonna hear about the acquisition of uh, unreasonable wealth, where um, rappers are rapping about uh, $250,000 cars. Uh, they're talking about uh, 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 over-sexualizing uh, the female, uh, they're talking about uh, using drugs, illicit dr- drugs, either using or selling them. Just a lot of uh, things that we shouldn't be overexposing our children to because, and in my opinion, it's a form of brainwashing, but this is uh, one of the system of oppressions that is used against uh, people of color. On the flip side of that, now, if you turn into a, a country and Western Station, I mean, uh, a country station, a, a pop station, these elements isn't being uh, funneled into uh, uh, of the white community. So when we pay a, a attention to these things, because I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, these different media outlets are have a big influence on our kids, because I can remember when I was uh, a teenager and some of the neg- negative uh subliminal suggestions that i received that led me to do what i did it wasn't just you know the guys in the community it was also some of the music that i was listening to and the music they was following uh on the radio programs and things of that nature There, i think this is, these are some of the uh the issues that we must address as far as you know uh the the uh the real issues not not the symptoms but the real problems that we must start addressing as far as you know, uh, not becoming uh, uh, always uh, remaining uh, open to be educated against uh, what's happening and what 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 have happened. You know, we 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 kind of say today that we live in a colorblind society, but I think that that it, that's a tactic of uh, you know luring people to sleep to what's really going on. I can
2: definitely attest to the prevalence of the colorblind uh, culture and its harmful effects it's had because all it really does is it renders you inadequate and unable to to process and even been, begin to understand the complexities of the um, systems of, of oppression, as you say, um, especially systemic racism. And, and it, it leaves, especially white people like myself and communities of white folks, it leaves us Thinking that all racism really is 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 using the N word and looking at black people as inferior and those things are harmful and and, and, and individual racism is is uh, still a problem, but it 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 leaves you completely inept to be able to comprehend the systemic uh, issues we're dealing with that are so complex not so complex but there's compl- complexities to it that, that that you have to spend time you know with and really really um, exercise your racial consciousness to kind of become aware of them, you know, you know, it's funny when you talked about like, you know, music and, and whatnot and its influence on young people, you know, it's it definitely when I, when I look back on history and even, even today, you know, I, music as an art form does seem like it does have an important place. It can play in society, given a voice to people who sometimes were voiceless, right? Where, um when i especially when i think about like the 1980s even 1990s there's so much violence by law enforcement and the war on drugs and and like you already mentioned poor communities but specifically poor communities of color and razor focused on black communities of color and there are some artists out there that their only way to to really process and articulate and get the uh, word out and trying to get the culture to recognize what's going on was through their, their musical, um, talents. But there's a fine line in there. There's a fine line between bringing up issues and, and speaking against the uh, systems of power and oppression and trying to commoditize and exploit young people's and their imaginations. Do you see that or do you uh, agree with that or not?
0: I agree with that hundred percent, Nate. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to speak on, uh, rap rap music as far as you know when i was coming up uh, one of one of the uh the groups that was a successful group but they also was positive because they really was kind of teaching uh, teaching the community and that was uh public enemy you had public enemy you had a tribe called quest and you know you had different conscious groups but then I guess you know the system, and I'm just gonna say the system, uh, seeing that this was empowering, you know, uh, young black black men and women, or uh, people of color, or uh, impoverished people, uh, too much. So they started infusing, you know, uh, gangster rap and rap that you know what I'm saying really didn't have any social consciousness to it, as far as you know. Then you had the advent of, uh, groups like Two Live Crew and, uh, Certain um, Mix a Lot. And these, these groups really didn't have no more value to them. And it seemed like it, it, it was a, a deterioration of values, uh, in the music. And from this era, you had, uh, because I remember, uh, at first, um, when rappers, uh, uh, like Public Enemy was out, It wasn't about the materialistic uh, aspects of it. They didn't wear big gold chains, rings and things of that nature. It was more of a, uh, it was a social conscious movement, you know, when things uh, got materialized and, you know, objectifying women and things of that nature. And I think, you know what I'm saying? This was a a calculation to weaponize uh, the music against impoverished communities. And I, you know, that's debatable, but that's just how I feel. You know that a lot of uh, our music was weaponized. I, I still think it's uh it's happening uh today. If you search, there's a lot of conscious uh, rappers out there that don't get the uh, in the airplay. It's a lot of good music out there, rap music and urban music, but it it don't make it onto the airways because the airways are so uh, oppressive and it's weaponized against the community.
2: of these systems of, of oppression, and I'm really enjoying that that uh, phrase you have there because it does encapsulate a lot. Systems of oppression, because it seems like there's there's so many ways in which our communities are are oppressed and also divided. You know, that we, there's an intentionality to it. It seems like sometimes that there's a desire for that division and a d- desire for that instability to be there because wh- what it does is it keeps it keeps us from being able to form coalitions together, form a movement that could not be stopped if there wasn't for all these different ways in which we're separated and divided, not only within, like you said, an individual uh, neighborhood or impoverished neighborhood where you have a you know, division that takes place um, there or just within a, a city or within a town, within a state, I guess it gets bigger and bigger and there's all these different uh, realms of division. You, you kind of see that yourself?
0: just like there's a potential uh like we we're talking about the music there's a potential for evil, but there's also a potential for good also one of my things is uh, and why I try to you know uh offer my voice and lend my voice to the movement is what what do I want to see happening and how to go about uh, uh making it happen you know we see the problems we see the problems of our communities we we understand what uh, what poverty is. We understand what uh, racism is. We understand uh, what economic devastation is, and things of that nature. There. But how how to go about changing these things? I think for every problem there should be a solution. I think the best way to come to a solution is is first recognize uh, what's going on. And then, you know, try to do as much as you can do from your ability to uh, change that from rather, you know, is uh, speaking your truth, telling your story, telling uh, the next generation uh, what they don't wanna do, uh, what you what you then went through and they don't have to go through it and things of that nature now. And I think that's very important it's, it's just sharing with people, showing love and compassion and concern for the next generation and basically, you know, feeding that part of yourself that wasn't fed when you was a child. You know, that's that's basically, you know, why I try to do what I I do.
2: What stood out to me there, as you, you mentioned, you know, the value of telling your story. I really resonate with the power of storytelling and what it can do it's one thing to sit down and debate issues with somebody on a, on a fact by fact intellectual level, like we're a bunch of, um, Greek philosophers sitting around just talking about things that are in the abstract, but it's not, it's a whole different thing when you're like telling a lived story experience and about issues. And that's, I can't have enough of that. I don't think it's so powerful.
0: I I agree with you on that, Nate. And, um, I, I think it's so much, it's a, it's so much power and wisdom in sharing your lived experience opposed to, you know, basically debating about abstract issues or whatever, you know. But when, when a person tells a story, if I tell you something that happened to me, it's, it's almost like a poem, okay? If I tell you what happened to me, it's not on me to tell you the interpretation of what's happening to me. It's what interpretation that you receive from it. And your interpretation may be totally different from the next man's and inter- a woman's interpretation. I think, you know, that's the value of a story. This is what happened to me. Now you tell me how you feel about it. And a lot of times uh have, have a, have a person respond to your story. They kind of tell you about them also because if I tell you something horrific that happened to me and you have a nonchalant response to that, there, then it's basically like, what what is that saying about you? And I think, you know, that's that's part of the history of this country. It's like I once heard this statement that the burden of shame isn't on the slave. The burden of shame is the one is on the person who put that person in slavery or inflicted that harm onto that next human being. So, And I kind of look at that uh, when it comes to evaluating or putting my uh, prison uh, sentence into perspective, that a lot of things that uh, goes on in these houses of bondage, the people who are there, who are incarcerated there, that shame doesn't belong to them. The shame belongs to the system that inflicted the punishment on these individuals, and this is same. I can I can say the same thing for when you see different systems of oppression that is operating at different levels in our society. The woman or the family that is underpaid or making. Uh, below poverty wages to support their family. The shame isn't on the individual who works hard but can't feed their family. The shame is on the society who doesn't give the, the per a living wage. This philosophy can be applied,
2: uh, in my opinion,
0: across the board when we're dealing with these different issues of poverty.
2: I think that's such a counter narrative, or maybe a balancing narrative to the overemphasis of the individual responsibility narrative that is so per- prevailing with throughout our culture and our society. When I'm listening to you speak here, I I, I I hear you not saying that there's a neglect of personal responsibility. You recognize that there's things that I can do in my life to um, to contribute to to a better world same time, I got to have a clear eye understanding that there are systems in place that can be in direct opposition to that better world we're trying to create. <laughs> and when you're only focused on one, not the other, and you're not willing to, to do the, the balance and the dance and recognize that there's this, both things can be true, then you're, you're missing it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. When I'm looking at, uh, the George Floyd, uh, court case, and I'm looking at all the witnesses that they're bringing forth and things of that nature there. Here it is. We're in 2021. We've seen this with our own eyes, how this man kneeled on another human being neck and took his life. The whole world seen that down. We're going through this court process and it's still in my mind that this man actually may get off because that's, that's the type of dynamics that this country has so for so long uh, perpetrated on people of color. Where well, even though we didn't see this with our eyes, the whole world didn't see this. You know, in black people mind, the people of color mind. Uh, I'm saying I can't speak for everybody. But I'm saying the evidence, the case that they didn't present it before uh, the jury. It ain't nowhere in hell that this man supposed to get off. But a part of my mind, part of uh, this look guy that's talking in my head is saying, man, this is America.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just, there's plenty of precedents in the past that kind of validates your perspective. So, yeah, like you're you're kind of feeling this thing and it's like you're not going to be surprised if it goes a certain route. And because uh, you, you've seen it, you've seen it played out so often throughout the history of this country. Hi, listeners. Nate again. I wanted to insert here that the trial against Jack Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd is over. And as Klaim had mentioned, to the surprise of many, he was found guilty by a jury of his peers. And although this is a moment of accountability, we know that there's a lot of work to be done. I just wanted to acknowledge that. Okay, back to the conversation. And now I was just, as you're talking about this uh, case, that you, it's kind of, the question that came to my mind is as you're watching all this and you're thinking about the criminal punishment system, that you, you yourself had to be you experienced it in all of its horrors what do you think about the system in general should it like what would you think would be a system that would be better to build be to address this officer or do you think the system is set up to where it should address this officer and his his crimes against george floyd and, um, and the murder of george floyd uh, so in your imagination what do you think about this criminal punishment system could it be um, overhauled or should it be completely scrapped and a new system built? What's your kind of perspective having actually been through it?
0: First of all, I'd like to say this, here. when I went to court at 17 years old, first I was facing the death penalty, then they dropped the death penalty and then they, I was had a capital offense, a capital murder offense. It took approximately three hours for them to come back with a sentence of guilt for my crime. And that same day, I was given a life without sentence. So from start to finish, my trial that determined whether I should stay in prison for the rest of my life took approximately three and a half hours. Now, for the last week and a half going on two weeks, and it's not over with, we've seen We got video digital evidence that this man, in my opinion, intentionally took this other human being's life. And as of now, the trial has went on for two weeks in answering your question. Is this system? I think the question was, is the the, the criminal punishment system able to adjudicate this case? In a fair and just manner, in answering that question, I don't think that's how you phrase the question. But I'm gonna <laughs> answer. In answering that question, I'm gonna say no, and at the same time, I'm gonna say yes because it's tricky. Now, what's afforded? What I'm seeing right now is they uh, adjudicating him through the uh, the process. Is they get giving him a just trial because they taking everything in consideration. And in taking everything in consideration, it's taking a span of two weeks thus far for the prosecutor to present their case and the defense gonna present their case. This is the consideration that I feel I should have been afforded, but I wasn't. There's, there's, there's two sets of justice. Uh, for people of poverty, impoverished uh, uh, people, people of color, they receive one uh, form of justice, but other people receive a different form of justice. And we see it, we see it throughout, you know, our criminal punishment system. If you're, uh, if you're privileged, if you're white, if you're an officer, you know, or uh, have uh, any kind of uh, uh, political or uh, standing of anything like that there, you receive uh, a different form of justice. In answering that question, if the system was equally applied to people of poverty and people of color, then I think the system uh, could be uh, worth trying to savage. But as it operates now, I think we need to rehaul everything, <laughs> you know, you know, just tear it all the way down and re, rebuild a different system. I look at I look at the system now that it's in place is 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 is, is just a, a, a slavery 5.0, and I can I can I can tell y'all kinds of stories that if I tell you what happened to me and don't put the year behind it, you'll think that you're in the 1800s because it's it's still happening in these houses abundant. And then, and then we also must take in consideration that a life is a life. The worst punishment that Chauvin, uh can receive, he still would get to be free again. If they give him fifteen years, if they give him fifteen years, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's the max that they say he can get is fifteen years for, uh, uh, I think, a second degree murder or something. If they give him the max sentence. He still has a parole date to be free to, in, in my opinion, he intentionally killed George Floyd. And he's way past the age of maturity. So when you compare that against a lot of the draconian sentences that, that are being passed down to our youth, you know, and people who are have uh, mental issues, that's something you know that as a society we need to pay attention to and and I just think you know what this that's very important when we are talking about the criminal punishment system
2: at 17 uh, being convicted, sentenced to a life imprisonment without parole what was that like kind of the experience of of being incarcerated and I'll kind of I'll, I'll kind of listen to what you say and kind of follow up where our, our points that kind of really stick out to me.
0: Well, first of all, I like to say about being incarcerated. We call it incarcerated, but I'm I'm gonna say it's like a more appropriate uh terminology for it is being placed in slavery. That's that's exactly how I felt. You know, I felt like I was a legalized slave when I was um uh, uh, sent to uh these houses of bondage. I say these houses of bondage because during the, during the course of my 28 years, I spent time and did time at approximately six different units. And the same program was permanent throughout uh, each other units, which was slavery. Uh, I remember one time in particular, and I think I was uh, about 21 years old at this time, I had... Uh, Something like the first year or two of my incarceration, I was placed on um uh, during the time that they were picking cotton. I went to the hole. I said, man, I'm, I'm not picking no damn cotton due to the fact of uh, my constitution as an individual. Uh, I knew the history of our people as uh, during the times of slavery and things of that nature. So I'm like, I'd rather be in the hole than pick cotton. So I chose to went to the hole so uh a couple of years later by by this time i was like 20 21 years old and i found myself on whole swat i had got reduced in class and i found myself on whole swat on whole swat again and it w- and it was cotton season so i knew it was cotton season so i'm like oh, well i'm not even going out there I'm, I'm not fit to go through that so when you refuse to go to work usually what they'll do is um uh, They'll just lock you up in the hole uh, in isolation. So my thing was I'd rather be in isolation than go out go out into these fields and picking and cotton. So instead of them locking me up in isolation this particular time here, they made me go to uh, what they call Saladport. And Saladport is like the entry building to, you know, uh, where all the host-wide trailers come through and all that there. So they had me go to Saladport. So I'm thinking they're going to have me just sit in salad port all day in the hot sun, which I was, you know, I didn't want to do it, but I prefer doing that there than going out and picking and cotton. So the sergeant came out and he like, uh, get on the truck. So I'm like, uh, no, nah, I ain't going to get on the truck due to the fact I ain't going to go out there and picking in cotton. So he's like, oh, you're going to get on the truck. So he put me in handcuffs and uh, made me get on the truck and. Every time he started the truck up, I jump off the truck. We we went through this uh about three or four times to the to the point where he got tired of just every time he started the truck up, I jump off. What he did then he took a chain and changed me to the uh the bumper. It's, it was like a uh like a bumper in, in the inside of the truck and he changed me to it where I couldn't jump off. When he did this here, he like, I got something for you. He started driving all the way. Like, if, you, if you're if familiar with commons and Vaughn and Union, you, you're familiar with how many fields are, you know, just open fields with either, it depends on what season that, that's in. It's it just open cotton fields or, bean fields away in this particular is is cotton fields so he's driving me way down these these dark i ain't gonna say dark but these dirt roads and as far as i can see you know we like going way down these fields and at the time that we're driving where well, he's driving me down um uh, these dirt roads i'm thinking like damn uh what, what's next? What's fit to go on? So I'm getting kind of scared now because I didn't hear different stories about the abuses, you know, that's inflicted on uh, people. So I'm like, uh, I'm thinking to myself, man, what's going on? So I'm saying little prayers and stuff in my head and things like, that because I'm scared. Now we out of sight. You can see the compound, but ain't nobody around. So he come to a stop and then the next thing, another truck pulls up. And that's him. He's the sergeant, big white dude. The major get out the truck. Another big white dude, and the captain get out the truck. All all three of them is big barely white guys. He on he on uh, from the uh, the bump on the inside of the truck. Take the handcuffs off of me. Like uh, get out the truck. So I get out the truck, the major he walks up to me like uh uh what's this shit I hear about you ain't picking no cotton? I'm like, uh I don't pick no damn. And before I get cotton out, he swings on me and hit me. My natural instinct is uh to swing back. After uh I get my punch in, they all beat me down, uh and Stomp me down out there in the field, so you know, I curls up, try to protect myself the best way I can. But now, my my anger then overrode then overrode my fear. I guess they seen that they had went too far. They they got up off of me. I get some dust myself off. Now it's like, why did you make me do this, hero? this is the major uh talking to me now why did you make me do this here so i'm like man i ain't make you do shit but i ain't picking no mo- no cotton you know and i'm just really kind of tempering my words back then ain't exactly what i said but i put a little bit more with it i'm like i ain't picking no cotton man i guess that they all seen that i was committed to the ideal of not picking cotton so it's like uh well, we just want you to stand in the field. Uh, you don't gotta pick no car we just want you to stand in the field. So I'm like, whatever, man. So that morning I stood out there in the field until lunchtime, and when we came in lunch came in uh back in the building at lunchtime, I'm so mad that I'm talking about I'm about to really do something real stupid. And I guess, you know, uh uh God son a son brother named Malik into my life and uh he talked to me like uh he like, man, what's happening? So I explained to him what had went on. And he like, uh, well man, uh I understand, you know, you need to calm down and things of that nature down. And he kinda he, he kinda guided me through that process why I wouldn't why I wouldn't, you know, place myself in further jeopardy. He gave me you know, outlet, you know, in the way of that I need to talk to someone. So he, he directed me to the assistant warden. And I explained to the system warden what was going on out there in them fields. And uh, at the time, the assistant warden was a black dude. So he kind of like asked me, well, what do I expect him to do about it? And then I basically told him, well, really, man, uh, I don't expect you to do shit. On the strength that I understand your position, and it's if you accept my word over their word, but they're gonna say they didn't do it, then I'm just, you know, informing you what they got going on. So uh, after this particular incident, for some reason, I'm I'm attributing it to the sister warden. I wasn't required to go back out in the fields anymore um, until you know the cotton season was over. These are the Type of things that uh, that are happening in these houses of bondage, uh, and that's why I say it's, it's really, you know, uh, slavery uh, 2.0. Uh, you know, just a, just another version of slavery.
2: There's a lot of parallels there in there because when we think about your ancestors who were enslaved and on those same cotton fields, they were considered not to be quite human. You know, at least not as human as white people were. So there's a loss of humanity that kind of justified the treatment of enslaved Africans and African Americans. I, I think that that same inhumanity is applied to people who are incarcerated. Like you don't really you don't have, you're not really fully human, you're just kind of you know you're in a cage and that's where you belong and so we we, we can't appreciate that perspective, we can't appreciate the complexities of of your, your lived experience from the outside without having that perspective from the inside, like you're sharing. Preface when you said that when you, when you if you begin to talk about what it's like to be in the in these systems of punishment, that it would feel like you're talking about a story from the 1800s. And that's I wrote that down as you were talking I was like, "This is 1800s stuff here," <laughs> you know. This is, and you're exactly right uh, because you're you are a human being who was in this. You're you are put in this system of bondage, house of bondage, and. Your humanity is still there, and so you're, you're having to, to deal with what it means to be human in those those environments. And fair to say that it's not a place that your humanity can flourish without some uh, support from those around you. And so you, you mentioned your, your your friend there that helped out, kind of gave you some advice to go talk to the assistant warden there. Would you say that was kind of an important component of your survival over the 28 years was meeting your fellow brothers
0: not only me but i think in general if you see if you see growth in individuals after they uh, are released uh, from prison the growth isn't what the administration gave them. the growth comes from what individuals who are sharing their lived experience with them gave them. because i can name When I look at, when I look at myself and the person who I become during my incarceration, everything positive that I picked up when I was in prison came from what I like to say one of my teachers, which was, you know, older guys who had did 30 and 20 and, long-term what we used to call them is uh, uh old schools uh, 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 lifers uh, long termers and things of that nature there are guys who 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 had been there and who had really found them themselves and over the course of time when I look look you know, just reflect on my incarceration when I first got there I was a certain way but as I matured, Uh, into, came into my maturity, came into my manhood, then I started, you know, reaching out to the younger, younger guys and, you know, really kind of telling them how, how not, you know, I used, you know, uh, brother shared this here saying with me one time, he asked me, you know, do you have the spirit of a free man or do you have the spirit of a slave? And once I, you know, really truly analyzed that question, I understood, you know, what he was saying. Because uh, if you have the spirit of a free man, then you're gonna do things, you know, that indoctrinate in things into your life that can help you maintain your freedom, no matter what your uh, environment is. But if you have the spirit of a slave, then you're gonna act like that in you know, kind of subject yourself into, you know, a slave type mentality. I like to kind of uh, say that I was free long before the United States Supreme Court said it was unconstitutional to give a juvenile life without sentence. And long before I walked out on August the 10th, locked out of the the physical uh, bondage of my incarceration. I was free way before that there because I had allowed myself to have a free relationship with the world and incorporate things into my life that uh, really constituted me being free. I can remember one conversation that uh, I had with a woman when I was in prison. I didn't know her from, uh, I was standing in the uh, the commissary line and this woman, she walked up, and I said, uh, "Hey, how you doing?" Uh, and we had a general conversation, and I think the conversation was really kind of pertaining to uh, the weather, because I'm like, "How you doing? Uh, this is such a lovely day," and she responded, uh, "It really is," and we kind of exchanged pleasant, uh, uh, pleasantries. After she walked off, um. Uh, the guy behind me, he like, uh, man, uh, you know her? Then I told him, I said, well, well, no, I really don't. Uh, he said, Uh, well, you was talking to her like you really knew her. Now I said, No, uh, that just was two freeware people having a conversation. That's how I started treating myself long before my physical incarceration was over with, i start i started recognizing that the only person that can truly lock me up was myself and that came along with believing or buying into the way the administration tried to treat me and it was a lot of things that that administration did to kind of make you take a subjective, uh, well, objective uh, opinion of yourself to the form of, you know, just a lot of uh, negative message that they they try to impart on you. Like here it is 2021 and we still have a system that teaches that new recruits not to address individuals as certain man have uh lessons like don't fraternize with the inmate have lessons like don't feed the inmates like you're an animal at a zoo like you know how uh you might go into a national park or something they have signs of don't feed the animals these are some of the things that are taught in the adc the mentalities that is imparted onto the new recruits on how to treat the individuals who are incarcerated now. I just said to myself, I made a a conscious decision to be free within myself and have the spirit of a free man. Even though I was surrounded and I was in a physical environment of slavery, make no mistake, my physical environment was an environment of slavery, but I, I chose, you know, to be free uh, within my spirit. And I think, you know, uh, that's how I dealt with it. That's how I dealt with uh, 28 years of incarceration. It's sad, but it's a reality. It's uh, there's so many things that, that are so wrong. And I think that's one of my biggest uh, One of my biggest things when I, when I did get physically free, it was like, I felt like I escaped the plantation. I can't forget about it because a lot of the people that I love and I come to love as my brothers are still in bondage. And one of the most powerful is, uh, I think one of the most powerful scene is, uh, in cinematic, uh, uh, history that I equate to how I felt when I when I was uh, released. There was a scene in the movie of Twelve Years of Slave of, of slavery, 12, 12 Years of Slave, uh, when uh, Solomon Norford when the guy came down and you know brought his papers or whatever, and he was uh, he was uh, leaving, and he looked at Patsy. He like looked at her like, uh, "I don't want to leave you, but I gotta go." You know. In the day that I was released, there was a there was a lot of guys that they know I was fit to go. That I one guy I had slept beside for the last ten years. One guy I had uh, did about twenty years with him other guy I had did another 20 years with, you know, we all was like, uh like brothers. And when I was leaving, it was like a part of me, like, man, I don't want to really leave these guys, but I got to go, you know, this this is my chance to be, you know, physically free. But I kind of promised in my heart and I, I never did uh, uh, wager a promise to them but I promised in my heart, I, I'm like, well, man, I'm leaving, but I'm going to do everything in my power, you know what I'm saying, for you guys to see your freedom. If it's nothing, is it nothing that that you got to live vicariously through me, I'm going to do that down. And, you know, that's, that's a part of uh, why I tell my story, why I get on these type of platforms and share um, my experiences of my incarceration. Because I know that, that a part of me, by me sharing my experience, I'm telling their story also. If you can look at me and say that, you know, uh, Kaleem is doing uh, good work and things of that nature, then, you know, maybe when you hear of bills like 591 and different, you know, juvenile bills and different reform bills and things of that nature, down then you'll have more compassion for these type of bills because the bottom line is everybody deserve uh, an opportunity to live and be prosperous and not judge by their worst acts because everybody have uh, have things you know that they are not a, not a, uh, proud of as human beings but I, I just feel like everybody deserves a second chance and that's, that''s that's part of why I do what I do because I think um, that's a redemptive quality of the human spirit that needs to be given uh, a chance to be great, a chance to be, uh, for the lack of word, for the lack of uh, words, human.
2: I'm really struck by the the comparison you made or the, the contrast between what leads to growth in these oppressive institutions and it's not the system itself, it's the it's the bonds you create, that it's the friends that you develop, it's the brotherhood and sisterhoods that are developed that can lead, potentially lead to the growth that can um, liberate you and, and allow you to, to be a free person no matter where you are. And uh, that's so powerful. And yet, like I said, there are opportunities to... To entrap yourself in the mentality of being enslaved, and uh, take on the enslaved mentality versus the freed person mentality, and it's interesting to me because when we first started this conversation, we talked about you know even in a neighborhood, an impoverished neighborhood, even though there is violence present and opportunities for to get involved with harmful activities to yourself and to others, there's also the presence of love and community. Elders, same elders that you talked about that are present in the institution were also present in your neighborhoods, and yet when it, when you got into the um, houses of bondage, um, you were able to find a new path that didn't. You could have chose the same old, same old, right? What you had, had always known before, which is the path of the enslaved mentality, and yet, and yet, um, you're able to find your way into the path of the free person. In you talked about the institution itself is designed to actually encourage and foster negative perspective, you know, the, the enslaved perspective. What's, you know, you're having to fight against that current, you know, and it's, it's, the institution is more obvious, right? The system that you see, the physical system that you can actually, it's got tangible walls and it's got people in it doing this harm but it's no different than the systems that we deal with, other systems of oppression, right, that try to enslave enslave us as well, not just um, in the form of incarceration, but in the form of poverty and racism and, and uh, we, uh, lack of education. You know. And uh, these institutions are causing more harm, not, not feeding the free mentality, but the enslaved mentality. Uh, all those things are just really... Uh, Standing out as you were speaking, and um, really powerful. And um, I was also thinking about the complexities of the human person. And you you talked about when, when you became uh, at a certain point of your maturity, you were able to kind of help take on that role yourself of being an elder who could uh, speak to the younger uh, boys and men who are coming into the system. But the thing is, like you know, just like you you at seventeen. And 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 you can and you see it in in the, the younger people as well as they come in. know, there's a lot of baggage that you're carrying from what you have experienced in your life in your young life, and that baggage of pain and, and hurt and its own forms of captivity that need to be addressed. And the institution is not going to do it. <laughs> you know, as it's, it's it comes from their relationships, and it's like. Come on, it's, the system is not designed to actually rehabilitate rehabilitate anybody. I
0: wanna I wanna share I, I wanna share something with you uh, in the uh listener audience. Before I went to prison, I was very scared. And I remember asking my uncle, because he had been to prison before, him, and I had asked him, I said, What is prison like? And he told he said, he told me just like this here. You know, he said, I'm not going to tell you anything about prison. He said, but I'm going to tell you this. He said, whatever in you, prison is going to bring it out of you. Whatever is it, in you, prison is going to bring it out of you. And I find this statement to be very true, not just for me, but for everyone, whoever that I ever seen in prison. See, I thought, I thought that I was as hard callous person before I went to prison, before I was incarcerated, because when I was young, I was raised that men don't cry, that men was unfeeling and things of that nature now. I was given a false definition of manhood. But after I went to prison and really started as as I said once before, maturing into the uh, person who I really was and really just started bringing my true authentic self out, I learned that I had a great deal of empathy and compassion for human beings. And that's what prison ultimately brought out of me. And when my uncle told me that, Darrell, I looked at, his statement for, for a long time from the, from the wrong view, uh, perspective. But as I matured and became into my maturity, I understood that what, what that statement really was saying that prison really can't suppress your true identity as a human being, who you really are no matter how, how, how oppressive the environment is. Because I learned that through my incarceration, every time that I seen individuals being mishandled or mistreated, that affected me because I had that level of empathy. Every time I seen an ulcer or someone whether it's another individual that's incarcerated doing something to another individual, then that also affected me in any opportunity that I had to change, you know, that narrative, whether it was uh, officer abusing another guy or someone who is incarcerated uh, uh, or two individuals who are incarcerated abusing each other, anytime I had the opportunity to reach out and say, man, look, that ain't right. Then, you know, I exercised that and I learned that and I started using the the philosophy that, you know, if I can't, couldn't change it with my words, you know what I'm saying, then just, you know, denounce it in my heart type thing. That part of me that was, you know, in me, my incarceration, made that grow instead of, you know, uh, burying that down.
2: Yeah, I think that speaks to the idea or the truth, if you will, of the human consciousness, how we have the potential to tap into our true selves, our true nature, our true identity, mainly through adversity, you know, through moments of of suffering and oppression and struggle. It has the potential to release us from the bondage of the ego and from the layers and layers of, like you said, these false narratives that we ingest from our surroundings, from our childhood, messages we receive about who we are how we should act, all those those layers that can cause so much um, pain for ourselves and those around us. You now, It's only through adversity that those things can be um, undone and those layers peeled off. And so when I think about, you said that incarceration did that for you. You know, it's like despite the fact that the institution had no part in that, really, except for trying, except for bringing the the applying the pressure of, of the struggle, <laughs> and the 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 institution itself was the catalyst or the the uh, mechanism of your your um, adversity, and through that was birthed, uh birthed the uh, reality that you're an empathetic person. That's such a, a beautiful thing to see. Obviously, it'd be great for it. it. Had to be something you had to experience through the institution of incarceration, and um, but it's um, beautiful to see, and it kind of makes me think of it as a mystical journey.
0: And you know what, and you know what, uh, Nate, as as we saying this, uh I, I'm, I'm tempted to say that really incarceration really didn't do it. It just was a natural process that a person would, you know, you was going to be who you were going to, you, you was going to be who you are in a way because that's who God created you to be. So it's like, like a metamorphosis, you know, uh, okay. You start off as a caterpillar, but your natural. Uh, it was deemed that you, you to become a butterfly. So it's, it's the same thing, uh, when you went in. When when you went in, you just was a caterpillar, and it it took you to go through your co- your cocoon phase for you to become a butterfly. But you was gonna be a butterfly in a way. The incarceration really didn't do it. It's just you you matured. You 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 grew, in, you grew into who you were gonna be in a way. Now, the environment that you grew into. Becoming this butterfly was a harsh environment, but your essence was down from the beginning. And that's what we have to, uh, I think when we're dealing with this criminal punishment system, we, we must start from a community perspective as having more empathy toward human beings, having more compassion, to all human beings, and this is this is what is missing out of the system. We're we're more uh, punishment-driven instead of you know looking at individuals as human beings first, and and if something is broken, how do we go about uh, helping to repair that? You know, how do we bridge? Uh, 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 Repair that uh, brokenness that we may see in individuals. Because if we're not looking, in my opinion, if we're not looking to uh, help repair individuals, then we shouldn't even. What are we doing?
2: Yeah, that's like you said. Yeah, it seems like, like you said, our our focus as a culture is we're super focused on punishment and not really focused on the. Higher uh, things such as restoration and healing, you know, and restoring.
0: And I think it's 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 imperative uh, that I say this, here, that restorative justice, as far as you know, giving the individuals or giving the victim a chance to say what they need to say, and get them giving people the chance to to fix what can be fixed or, or to truly offer true contrition, true apologies, uh, um, giving the victims a chance, uh, our system isn't, isn't set up to do that. And that's one of the biggest problems It's like, you have to make room for people, not so much as to say, I'm sorry, but to offer uh, some form of, of amends, because when you don't, when you when you don't uh, uh, do that, you kind of facilitate the repetition of the cycle of violence. I try to show my contrition through the work that I do. I recognize uh, the harm that I did, or uh, the harm that I caused, but I also try to offset all that by putting forth the effort of doing the work that I see need to be done within the community so that the next generation that is coming up won't be so destructive in inflicting harm upon the community.
2: Let's talk about that a little bit, you know. What are you doing now? What are you involved with that kind of uh, doing the work like you said that you're doing and uh, what are some things that you're up to that that uh, you wouldn't mind sharing with us
0: well um uh, some of the work that i'm doing um uh, i'm an active member of the uh arkansas poor people's campaign so i kind of uh, advocate in that way there uh i work for decarcerate as a coordinating uh member i'm a member of uh the campaign for the fair sentences of youth, uh, which uh I can and uh, incarcerated chair and advocacy network, uh which is a branch of um the uh campaign for the fair sentences of youth. And uh we just uh advocate for the fair sentences of uh juveniles, uh age appropriated sentences and things of that nature. There this summer I'll be graduating um from uh, Arkansas State University uh, with an associate's degree in uh, HVAC, uh, I've been doing that since I've been out. Uh, I have one more class that, uh, this summer. I graduate. I, I, I got one class left. I I I kind of been having my hands full since I've been out, <laughs> and I'm hoping to put a little bit more on my plate. I just feel it's important to. Not so much as prove to myself, because I know who I am as an individual. I kind of look at it like I told a brother one time, uh, a brother in Washington, D.C., was talking. And he was, like, uh, telling me about a a guy in in, uh, Michigan who also was a juvenile lifer who was uh, going to law school. And he's about to... uh, uh, take his bar exam or something to that nature there. and I'm like, oh man, it's great man and you know i i I shared with him that every time I hear about a juvenile lifer, a former juvenile lifer who is out here you know getting law degrees uh opening their own businesses or uh, any kind of success uh that's attached to their name, i uh attributed that to my success. I'm like, uh, well, man, uh, that's me though. You know, uh, that's me being successful because I understand. I understand the principle that a lot of times this society uses as far as you know, when one, when someone do something bad, then that's a tribute to everybody. You know, and just like in 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 Arkansas a couple of years back, uh, this one guy, and I'm not gonna call his name, but He committed a lot of crimes, but they kept on letting him go. So after he did something bad enough, they landed him back in prison. They changed the sentencing laws to affect everybody. Where, you know, now, you know, once you you commit a a minor offense, you go straight to prison, do not pass go. So when I hear about guys doing positive things, after having been juvenile lifers and long serving long term sentences, then you know, even though it's not published in the in the papers about the successes uh, that other people are experiencing who have went through these traumatic events, uh, events, I still attach to it, attach onto it like you know that's my success. In the same way, you know, they attach of these failures onto everybody i attach the success onto myself and others like me because it's important that stories of success be amplified just as stories of uh, failures are amplified you know these destructive stories are amplified i just feel you know that we as a community must amplify the positive stories and you know that's what I can say about the organization of uh, the campaign for the first sentences of youth and ICANN members that we are we are a community who who try to amplify the positive successes that we are receiving after having went through such traumatic events because a lot of times we talk about our prison sentences but when we talk about them to, to to talk about them is to reach back into that uh, tra- trauma but also to juxtapose that trauma against what we are doing today. And I think, you know, uh, it's a beautiful thing when I hear about uh, uh, my other brothers and sisters' successes. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so it's it's great that you have organizations like that that you're part of, partnered with, that can elevate those stories and celebrate the successes. Cause it's not easy. I mean, let me ask you this: you know, coming out, you know, after 28 years, was the transition difficult for you?
0: A brother uh, asked me that question, and uh, the biggest problems that I have faced since I've been out. Haven't really been my own. Is 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 the biggest problems I've been facing since I've been out is is dealing with some of the same problems that was permeating within my family structure before I went in, and it's still dealing with them cycles of uh, dysfunction that is still going on. It's like they're saying, "Go oh, when you know better, you do better." But when you know better, you want better for your, you know, your family and your loved ones. Also, as far as you know, my adjusting to society and in the way of you know, the superficial thing like getting jobs and staying employed and uh, socializing with others and all that, there, there hasn't been any barriers uh, for me. Uh, before i walked out of prison i made i was intentional about what i was going to do when i got on this side of the planet to the point where um, i wrote down goals i wrote down 5 things that i was going to do and i put them in an envelope and i still have them in the envelope and i ain't opened it yet but i know it was like a 5 year plan on what i was going to do One of, uh, one of my goals was I was going to, uh, write a book. I was going to surround myself with, uh, what I call avatars. And that's individuals that's outside of my comfort zone, but, uh, was positive individuals. I, then I said I was going to, um, get in contact with the people, uh, who have been advocating for me over the years, which was the Campaign for the first Sentences of Youth in different, you know, uh, organizations like that. Uh, I was gonna be part of it, like, uh, Decarcerate uh, the Poor People's Campaign and different things so that they, even though I didn't know about the Poor People's Campaign during my incarceration, but I said, you know what I'm saying? I was gonna get in contact with different organizations that's advocating for you know, uh, people who are incarcerated, I said I was going to get back in school, and then I had a financial goal, which I'm not going to tell you uh, what it was because I haven't uh, achieved that there yet. But pretty much, uh, I think I'm I'm on course uh, on achieving these these five goals that I set for myself. I think I've been accomplishing them before uh, the five year uh, period. After I accomplish them all then, you know, I'm in the process of saying five more, (laughs) five more. So uh, I think uh, my transition uh, back to physical free world society, I I haven't really, uh, I haven't really faced a problem that I haven't been able to deal with. And I like to say, you know, that my worst day out here beats my best day of incarceration.
2: So what do you think contributes to the ability for you to have a, or you and others who can have a good, successful transition back into society versus those who tend to struggle and even end up into a cycle of reincarceration?
0: I think first of all i think a person have to be free before they get free and then saying that you have to have realistic expectations and not uh i guess the best way to break that down is i'm gonna say it like this here the same man that created the problem can't solve the problem so if you're leaving prison with the same man that created the problem of you being in prison, that same man isn't going to sustain you in your freedom. Whatever it was that that led that person to incarceration or whatever trap you allowed yourself to fall into for you to get incarcerated, you first got to figure that out. And until you figure that out, you're really not going to have no long-term freedom. And I just feel like the person... That I was to get me incarcerated, none of them qualities or none of that uh, that mentality holds uh, true with me today. I don't have any risk, me personally. You know, I feel I don't have any risk of never, ever, ever again being reincarcerated. Uh, I just feel like that when a person uh, gets out, his uh, he had to have a totally new mindset in the way of uh looking at the world and dealing with his situation. Now I was blessed to the extent where when I was uh, when I was free, that I had a wife and I had a strong support system. And that came in the way with uh the people that when I was incarcerated that I surrounded myself with. That's like some of my closest friends today. They came in my life at a time when I was, you know, at the bottom of the world in a sense. And those same people I still socialize with today. I still consider my friends. I still uh, 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 take advice from. They're just like uh, uh, when I'm I'm having a problem on a manly level, I call my, my friend Cliff, you know, which was one of the C.R.A.s who, who came down to the inf- institution, or uh, Cliff Plegge, who came down to the institution. And just like when I used to have a problem down there, i talk to him, we will sit down and talk and rotate. And same thing now, you know, when I have a, a problem, hey, Cliff, uh, this is what I got going on. And we'll talk about it. That just like uh, uh, with Zach Crow. You know, I didn't meet him. When I got out, I met him when I was incarcerated. When I have a problem uh, uh, dealing uh, with the spiritual realm sometime or, you know, just need a, a feminine perspective on things. Uh, Sometimes I call uh, Morgan or I call Anika, you know. And and this was a part of, uh, this is uh, was one of my goals to surround my people, myself with uh with avatars, people who not not necessarily that that my former self would have been comfortable with, you know, communicating with or talking to, but people who I felt were genuinely good people who would give me good information and good advice when I needed, and I think that's a that's an important part of uh, my re uh, a mission into society, and I think you know. Every, every everyone who has been incarcerated or is being reintroduced into society need this type of support system
2: and, it, and it's there it is possible for us to actually systematize that to where it's not just the luck of the you know the individual who can figure all that out but actually we could actually create a system to where each individual incarcerated person can, Can be given these connections and this infrastructure that can help them uh, reacclimate and transition back into society. I mean, it's possible. We just don't do it, you know. But just uh, any final words you want to say about, um, if you want to speak to the incarceration system or to just uh, whatever you want to say to kind of you know. As, as, a, as a closing thought and words here, I, I'll leave it to you.
0: Just in a closing thought to speak to the uh, penal system that is in uh, operation is, I guess I think I, I, I always uh, was told that if you had had a, a, a gripe or a problem, speak to the people who can change it. So I'm going I'm to speak to the people who can change it. We must look at our own humanity when we're dealing with other human beings. In closing, i like to just say that treat people like you want to be treated for your worst act. If you're not treating them like you want to be treated, then you're treating them wrong. Because if you want a level of forgiveness for whatever it may be that your worst act may be, then you should also be willing to extend that level of forgiveness and also that level of humanity. And that's very important because when we start devaluating individuals and devaluating people, then we lose a part of our humanity also. So I just am in part that uh, we must start uh, treating individuals with compassion and empathy And also dignity. And when we lose them three qualities, then we also are losing a part of our humanity.
2: Well said. Well said. And an excellent uh, last word. Liam, thank you so much for coming on here and and having this conversation with me. It was uh, very meaningful, very powerful, and so so much uh, good insight. And so I can't thank you enough for uh, being on the podcast with me
1: we hope that you enjoyed the conversation today the arkansas poor people's campaign is focused on lifting the voices of those that are impacted by the evils of injustice this podcast is aligned with that mission so we invite you to come join the conversation if you are interested in sharing your story reach out to us at arkansas at Campaign.org and let us know that you want to be a guest on the podcast to speak your truth all who are members or partners with this campaign are welcome forward together is a production of the arkansas poor people's campaign the host of today's episode was nate davis producers of the episode include nate davis and david coffee script writing by anisa rayford ford intro and outro songs created by the poor people's campaign a national call for moral revival instrumentals by david coffee if you like what to hear please rate us on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast connect with the arkansas poor people's campaign on facebook and instagram at arkansas poor people's campaign a national call for moral revival on twitter at arkansas ppc or by going to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org arkansas thank you for listening and feel free to share this podcast with others